You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Providence Community Church. It's so good to see you all here today. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jenna Vaccaro, and I am the Director of Hospitality. Providence is a community of people formed around a single and compelling vision, and that's to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our community. So to that end, we open God's word every week because we believe it was given to us that we may know, worship, and obey Jesus. Um, So today we are going to be continuing on in a sermon series we've been in for the last few weeks. Um, We are in Ephesians chapter 4, 5, 6. And um, the title of that sermon series is called Life Together, where we've been stepping through these chapters and kind of talking about what it looks like to live out the Christian life in context of community. Um, So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 5 through 9 this morning. Um, If you do not have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that Bible with you today as a gift from us. So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he, is, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Really glad that you're here today, especially if it is your first time. I just want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. I'm glad that you decided uh, to be here with us. Like Jenna said, we are working through the last chapter of the book of Ephesians. So we've been working through chapters 4, 5, and 6, and now we're in chapter 6, kind of towards the back end here as we uh, work through the last and final words of Paul the Apostle that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. Um... Oh, maybe roughly 2,000 years ago, a little less than that. And so this morning, Paul's going to come to come with an admonition to the church at Ephesus that I think um, in its context is really helpful. It's really common uh, in its theme, but we're going to have to do a little bit of work to try to finagle through some of the language because if we just read the language at face value with who we are in 21st century United States of America, we can get a little bit uh, bogged down and foggy on what he's actually talking about. Um, so he's been talking through various human relationships, right? At least for the past, I think, three or four weeks, he's, Paul's been addressing how husbands and wives interact together and how to parents and children and family interact together. Now he's going to use uh, at least the language that we have here of masters and servants, uh, which is uncommon to us, but I think once we do a little bit of work, it'll be helpful to talk through um, this relationship between those in authority and those under authority particularly. Um, and so before we do that, though, uh, I'm confident it's going to be helpful in life-giving, but I want to pray and ask the Spirit to lead us, ask the Spirit to speak to us through the Word. And so if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray, and, I, and I'll lead us. Father, thank you for your Word. We thank you that it's timeless and true. There's hope in life there. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were 
so willing to die and rise again, that you were so willing to take on the bondage of sin so that we might be freed from it. We thank you, Jesus, that you don't exert your authority as a domineering king, but that you've exerted your authority in such a way as to give us life and freedom. And so, Holy Spirit, we do ask now, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty of this scripture? Would you help us to apply it in a way that's both practical and in a way that's meaningful and changes us and shapes us? I do pray that for those under the sound of my voice that we call you Lord. We pray that we might apply this text in a way that, that shapes us, molds us, makes us more like, look more like you, Jesus. And for those who might be under the sound of my voice that aren't sure or wrestling and grappling with who you really are, Lord Jesus, I pray you would stand forth from this set of verses as a masterful Lord and Savior who calls all to yourself that they might be freed from bondage. We trust you, Lord. We praise you. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's read this again, and I'm going to read the first few verses. So Paul says this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and with trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bond servant or is free. So I think it's important that we define our terms. We've got to start there. We have to remember the Bible's a book that is written in a time and to a place and that is written to those people who inhabited that time and that place. So if we think back on the Bible, the Bible's 66 books or 66 different writings that are written in different times across various authors and various uh, uh, seasons of life and in different times and in different nations and in different cultures. So we always have to ask ourselves, well, what is being written and when is it being written? And trying to interpret the scriptures can be at times a task. Sometimes the Bible's very easy. You could just, it's very easy to read. It's very readable. And through the timeless passage of scripture, you could just read it without really thinking too much about it. There are other times where it's essential to know who's being written to and why they're saying what they're saying. Um, some people, it might not be familiar to you. The Bible, you know, I was speaking with someone this last week and talking with them about how the Bible was not originally written in English. You know, the Bible actually didn't have an English translation until 1611. The Bible's written in three primary languages, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. And because of that, translations can be difficult. It's why we have multiple translations. If you ever wondered why there's not just one translation, but there's multiple, it's because when you translate from one language to another, there's oftentimes not a, a word in particular that you can translate from, let's say, Hebrew to English and just say this word means this in English. An example, the best example to give in the New Testament might be the word love. The word love in Greek has three different words, and in English we just translate it love. And this is why whenever I'm preaching, I'll always talk about the difference, hopefully, that we have between saying I love chocolate cake and I love my wife, or, I, you know, or loving my wife and loving God. And in English, we don't have different words for love, but in Greek, they actually do break this down. So you have what is called brotherly love, the philos love. You have eros love, which would be the love that you have for your spouse. And then you have agape love, which would be describing this covenantal, unconditional love that God has for his people. But in English, we only have one word. So in, simil in similar ways, as you go through the Bible, you have multiple translations. Sometimes they'll take an entire phrase of the Bible, and the translators will translate the whole phrase Sometimes they'll take it word for word as best as they can, and then they'll try to work through how to make sense of that in the English language. But I say all of this to say there, there is such a thing as good biblical principles or 
are good biblical principles of interpretation and that it's important, I don't think just for preachers, but for all Christians to try to apply this, the questions that we should ask are really framed around two things, text and context. Text and context. They're questions like this. What did the Bible say? What did it actually say then? In the original language, to the best of our ability. What did it mean at that time? For, for Paul to be saying this to the church at Ephesus, what did he mean at the time to the hearers? Before we say, what does it say to us now, we have to say, what did it say then? Before we say, what does it say to us now, we have to figure out what did it say to them then? Does this make sense? So text and context has a big part to play. And so I want to start there because this word in particular, you may have different translations. If you read the ESV, you see bond servants is how the, how the Bible starts verse 5. But you might have other uh, translations that starts with the word slaves, or it might start with the word servants. So I want to do a little bit of work here to ask the question, what did the Bible actually say in its original language, and then what did it mean for the people at the time so we can fast forward? So originally, this Greek word here that's translated bond servants, okay, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, it's the word doulos, doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, and it's translated three different ways with three different English words all throughout your New Testament. And it's those three words, bondservant, slave, or servant. So you might see in the Bible that it says that we're called to be servants of Christ. It'll say doulos of Christ. Or in Romans chapter 6, it says that you were once a slave to sin, but now you have become a slave to God. What it says is you were a doulos to sin, but now you're a doulos to God. Another time it might say something like, uh, the, the Bible might say something like here, where it says servants or douloses plural, it's like doulosai or something. I can't remember exactly how it's pronounced. But doulos, it says you should obey your earthly masters. And so we have to break these down. What do these three things mean? Because they mean different things. A servant in the New Testament is one who's willfully employed by another uh, to serve the wishes of their master. So this would be someone who's like a servant who comes in and they serve in the household, they wash dishes, they clean, and they go back to their own household, right? Um, a slave in the New Testament or the old is somebody who's forcefully employed with the, to the service of their master without payment. This is different, and this would have been more common. And then number three, a bond servant, which is probably the most common, and I'll make a case for this, is one who willfully binds themselves to their master to, in order to cover debts or to continue under the care of their master for economic security. So the commentators say this, a debt bondage worker or a bond servant is one who's under the contract of an employer for a specific period of time in exchange for transportation, for food, for drink, for clothing, for lodging, or for other necessities. So that's what the word bond servant means. So at the time, the Roman Empire, if you're asking what Paul's saying to who, the Roman Empire, which includes Ephesus, was a society that included up to one-third of its population that would fall underneath one of these categories. And another third of the population would have at one time identified themselves with one of these categories. So two-thirds of all the Roman Empire would have fallen neatly under doulos at the time. It's absolutely impossible to understand the economic system of Rome apart from that Greek word doulos because that's how everything was kind of formed around. It would be like trying to explain the American system without being able to use words for credit card, banks, or lending. How do you explain that, right? If you can't explain debt in America, you can't explain America, you know? And we all kind of get this. Because at the time, whereas we go to banks, we borrow from banks in order to buy houses, okay, so that we might pay our mortgages, which is ultimately paying our bank so that we might actually own our houses, at this time, it would have been more like you go to a specific person called a master who employs you for the sake of your debt that you might own a security later on. So you're employed by this person so that one day you might own your own land. You're employed by this person so that one day you might have your own freedom. This is the kind of idea 
This is why the Bible could say things in the Old Testament that make a lot of sense, like the borrower is slave to the lender or doulos to the lender, right? It's because whoever lends to you, now you have to basically pay them back in order to have anything or sense of freedom. So when Paul speaks of the word free man, he's talking about someone who could have lived in Rome at the time and make a living for his family apart from having a master. Most likely that person would have been a bondservant at one time in order to actually, unless they had been born into some family of prestige, they most likely would have been a bondservant at one time before they were able to have something of their own. So my contention is that the best rendering of this verse is the one that the ESV uses, which is bondservants be subject to your earthly masters. Now, before we jump into what that might mean for us, I want to address something that I think is commonly a de- a detractors of the Bible will argue that verses like this mean that the Bible was for slavery. And I feel like it's important that we mention maybe a couple of words, a couple of thoughts on why that's not true. First, the first thought that I want to bring to it is, although many people, men and women, co-opted the scriptures and they used them to reinforce in our day what we would consider as Americans. When we think of slavery, we think of it in one way, and we think of chattel slavery, which would have been complete and utter ownership of another human being that you utilize in order that they might work for you forever and their children and all posterity, right? And what we find is that people would try to use scriptures like this in order to continue that institution on. Now, the Bible actually says different things. Like, for instance, in Exodus chapter 21, some people would point to that as God uh, instituting slavery or being okay with it. Actually, God is using a law that bondservants would be something that he was okay with, that God would say, for six years, you might have a bondservant that owes you a debt, and the seventh year, you must let him free. If he decides to live with you for the rest of his life with his family, then fine, he can do that, but you must let him free on the seventh year. But then if you go 10 verses down, God says, if you steal a man, or if you kidnap a man and you make him forced labor, the, the, the penalty for man-stealing or chattel slavery was the death penalty in Israel. This was not okay. It was not acceptable. God killed a person if they took another man or woman and made them their slave. Okay. What else? Well, we know that not only in Exodus, but later on, what we're going to find, like for instance here with Paul, is that Paul seems to not be okay with this idea. Now, I want to I bring something else to you, and I, I put this quote together. It's going to be on the screen. It seems to me that if we look at history, that we can't explain the abolishment of this kind of man-stealing slavery apart from the scriptures, apart from people who saw the scriptures as authoritative and saw God as the ultimate king, and that we had to submit to God's laws and authority, and that part of that was dignity in all image bearers. And if, if we looked at the the, the slave trade as it currently stood, and if we looked at it with full eyes and said that we were Christians and tried to continue that, that we were hypocrites. That's what I see when I look at history. And I want to give you one major example. William Wilberforce was a man who was committed to the end of the slave trade in both England and in the United States. And he stood before Parliament and he made this quote, and I want to read it to you, and I want you to really key in on what he appeals to when he asks the House of Parliament to consider abolishing this trade. He says this, When we think of eternity and the future consequences of all human conduct, what is there in this life that should make any man contradict the dictates of his conscience, the principles of justice, now this is key, the laws of religion and the laws of God? He speaks to the House of Parliament and the speaker here. He says, sir, the nature and all the circumstances of this trade, that being the slave trade, are now laid open before us. 
We can no longer plead ignorance. We cannot evade it. It's now the object placed before us and we cannot pass it. We may spurn it. We may kick it out of our way, but we cannot turn aside so as to avoid seeing it for it is brought directly before our eyes that this house must decide and must justify to all the world and to their consciences the rectitude of the grounds and the principles of their decision, close quote. So he basically stood before Pollard and said, there are four things that I appeal to. He says, how can you contradict the dictates of your own conscience, the principles of justice, And then the last two, the laws of religion and of God. How can you look and say that you've read the scriptures and say it's okay? His point was that you could not. And my point that I wanted to make before we move on is that although many men and women justified slavery through the Bible, it was the men and women who appealed to the totality of God's word who won the day. He won because he was right here. He won because God's word in its totality gave us the grounds that we would not appeal just to man's basic instinct, but we would appeal to God who has ultimate authority over human beings and say, he's not okay with this. That's the idea. And that's ultimately what won the day. Now, this brings us to our second, our primary aim, because here's what I'm going to contend, is that Paul's speaking of a different thing. He's speaking of Roman bondservants. He's not speaking of American chattel slavery. And so we ought to not, even though... American chattel slavery is a significant issue. It's an issue that had to be addressed with the scripture. We also ought to all constantly come back to it. This text is not about that. This text is about Roman bondservants. It's about Roman debt. It's about how you deal with Roman debt in service to another authority. And so here's the case that I want to make. The master bondservant relationship in Ephesians 6 is most analogous to what we would currently think of in our American system as our boss-employer or employer-employee relationship, our banks and our and the lender relationship that we currently sit under. That's what we see when we read this. We can't take our American mindset into the scriptures and make this say what it doesn't say. Paul's talking about the one who actually owns your debts and how we engage with that, right? or the person who pays you so that you might pay your debts. Does this make sense? All right. So whereas some of us are bosses in the room and you hold authority over others, and some of you might be just employees who have bosses, here's my guess is that in our system, you probably have kind of a dual role in some ways. Most people have people they report to, and then they have people that report to them most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. As I mentioned last week in my sermon, when I first started out at the prestigious nutty monkey ice cream store I didn't actually have anybody that reported to me (laughs) I was at the bottom of the of the food chain as it were okay when I started there and so maybe you're still there too and here's what I want to say to you it's okay it's where everybody starts right but for the most part we all have those things so I think we should do well to consider the entirety of this passage that Paul says and apply it so let's go back and let's read again what is Paul actually advocating for. And I'm going to include the master's portion. And here's how I want you to frame this. Those in authority and those under authority. Those in authority and those under authority. And here's what Paul's going to say. Even when you're in authority, you're still under authority. No matter what. Okay, here's what he says. Bond servants, you're under authority. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Jesus doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he's going to receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or he is free. Now check this out. This is a world-changing verse, would have been nowhere in any other writings. This is unique to Christianity, 100%. Masters do the same to them, unheard of up until this time. No bosses, no Gentile authorities, no one would have heard from an authoritative verse like, voice like Paul that God expects masters to treat their servants the same way that he expects servants to treat their masters. This would have been totally crazy. You have authority. You don't have to treat them any kind way, right? 
You have power. You treat them with the power that you have. Paul says, no, I expect you to treat them the same way. And what does he say? Stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their, their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. So I just want to walk through these briefly and then we're going to spend some time on them. I once had a conversation with a brother. I've been in vocational ministry for a long time. And so I was early on in my student ministry days, I, sp- I spoke with a brother who uh, was, he was a blue collar worker, uh, an elder and a pastor at a church that I worked for. And uh, he sat down with breakfast and I was talking to him about the difficulty sometimes of being a vocational minister and then a Christian as well and how there's a blend of these things and it's like okay sometimes my Christianity gets gets all roped into my job and I was talking to him and I I made a comment this was a subtle comment that he cut me off on and I said I know that's different for you but this is kind of how I'm feeling and he stopped me and said Court don't ever forget that you and I may have may our paycheck may come from different places but we have the same boss and his point was, like, we both work for the Lord, and the Lord just provides for us in unique ways. Someone else, another human being signs my check, but ultimately we work for God. And it always stuck with me. Because what he's referring to is this text, which is there is no such thing, at least in the kingdom mindset, of these vocational ministry roles. But there are Christians who work for God, and then God provides for his people in various different ways. This is how the Lord sets up his economy is that he says, ultimately, you work for God, not as a man pleaser, but you work for the Lord, and that's how you can submit to earthly authorities because you know that ultimately you work for the Lord. And so how does that change you? Well, Paul says it changes you because now you have a sincerity of heart because you serve at your job, whatever that may be, as you would serve Jesus. You're not a people pleaser by way of eye service because you're not trying to please your boss, you're trying to please God. Now, this will lead to something, and we're going to get to it in a little bit, which is integrity, a wholeheartedness, where you are the same person always. Number three, we trust that God rewards our worshipful labor. Now, I know for those of us who are kind of the gospel-centered crew, you're like, you recoil when the Bible talks about rewards because you think that I'm about to start selling you, like, my sweat rag and tell you that, you know, you're going to get a tenfold blessing if you buy it for the right price right now. Three easy payments. No. And we got a little bit of recoil here, but the Bible's clear about this. There's this mysterious reward that God promises to his people that engage with worshipful labor and engage with worship throughout their whole lives. He says that God's going to reward those. Hebrews 11 says he rewards those who uh, faithfully seek him and pursue him in faith. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 13 tells us this, that God delights in those who seek him and they find him and he rewards them with that finding. And so Paul says here that there's there's a connection between our faithful labor as unto the Lord and God rewarding us. Now, this does not mean that all of a sudden, you know, you work this and God's going to tenfold bless you, you know, in your bank account. It means that there is a reward, though. And then, of course, the idea that, that the masters might do the same is earth-shattering. And he says this. I love that Paul uses this. He says, stop threatening. Stop your threatening. So stop using your power to leverage over people in authority so that you can coerce their behavior. And then what does he do? Because you have a boss, too. And you'll stand before him. It's almost like he's like, stop threatening or else I'll threaten you with your true boss. He says, hey, the guy that you're, you're threatening, he has a master and Lord that's the same master and Lord as you. And here's what he says. And your God has no partiality. So when you stand before him, it's not going to be like you stand before him as his boss and he your employee. You stand before God as a subject of his and now he judges you righteously. It's a little bit of a threat to not threaten, right? It's intense. Now, The mindset and the shift here that I think Christians are called to have is this. Ask yourself the question, who do you think that you work for? If you change this mindset by the grace of God, it will change everything about the way you wake up on Mondays. 
Because I know many, most of you don't wake up on Mondays, or maybe some of you do, but for the most part, we don't wake up on Mondays. It's like, ooh, yeah, work time. So glad I didn't get an extra day off this Monday, you know, because that would be miserable. I want to go at 6 o'clock in the morning and drive down 1960 where they're making me go into one lane for no reason and just, you know, stay in traffic and, you know, have to get gasoline at the last minute, you know, honk at people, worried about road ragers, and then go into my job where the lighting is roughly hospital, hospital lighting. It's either way too cold or way too hot. I sweat on my way into my office, and then I have like a cold sweat, right? Most of us have this mentality. My question is, who do you work for? If you hate your boss, this is difficult, right? But Paul says that all Christians should be, asked, should be answering that question with, I work as unto the Lord. My boss is the Lord. Always my boss is the Lord. It makes my submission easier to any other earthly authority because I work as unto the Lord. Everything that I do is as unto the Lord. And who is the primary example for us to follow? Well, it's Jesus, of course. Jesus is the ultimate example of both walking in authority and under authority. Jesus simultaneously was the God-man who exercised all authority, right? Look at Jesus' miracles. He fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. He went fishing with Peter, and he just commanded fish to enter the nets. You ever think about that? Peter's fishing, and then one day he says, all the fish go into the nets. And they're like, okay, Lord, and they do. That's how it works. Jesus commanded dead people to come alive, sick people to get well, demons to shut their mouths, demons to run into pigs. They all did exactly what he said. Exercise ultimate authority, right? And yet Jesus had these sayings like, I don't say anything unless the father tells me to say it. I don't do anything unless the father tells me to do it. Jesus ultimately submitted to the father's authority in every action that he ever took. And check this out. To talk about the vocational and non-vocational for just a moment, Jesus was not just an itinerant preacher. In fact, that's what Jesus did for only three and a half years of his life. Jesus died at 33 and a half years old, and for 30 years, he was just a carpenter. He was the blue-collar worker who got up in the morning, and he hit his thumb with hammers. He, you know, had to put on his tool belt in the morning. He was sore when he woke up, I imagine. I imagine he probably had people that bought things from him that were a little bit unruly and difficult to deal with. You know, the guy that agrees upon buying it for this price, and then he comes back later, and he's like, no, we agreed on this price, and Jesus has got to deal with this guy. Jesus was just a blue-collar man who worked as a carpenter for 30 years, and then you might wrongly say, well, yeah, but then he got his dream job as a preacher, right? (laughs) If you've read the Bible, then you know that it wasn't Jesus' dream job. His job description was brutal. And that's what Jesus did for three and a half years. But the details of Jesus' jobs are unique. And they are this, that Jesus simultaneously exercised authority, always understanding he was under authority. He worked as unto the Lord for both jobs. And this is the key. That's what Paul's saying is the key to unlock Christian labor. Christian labor is that it doesn't matter if you've been given earthly authority or not. You ultimately sit under the authority of God and that there's freedom there. Now, let's apply this practically, and then I want to get to what I think is the main point of the text that maybe we're not saying. But let's start this practically. Whether or not you're a boss or you're not a boss, if you're under authority or in authority, here's what I'll say. It's always to the glory of God. And Paul gives three major things that we need to consider. Number one, we operate with integrity. Christians operate with integrity, meaning that we don't, we're not one person one day and then another person another day. We're not one person with one group of people and then another person with another group of people. You guys have all seen this, Right? It's the guy who jokes around with you in the office and then the boss walks in, you know, and he turns into like Andy Bernard, like right by him, you know. Hey, boss, good to see you, man. I'll walk you to the bathroom, you know, that guy. 
hey, come sit with me, or you know, want to hang out, or you know, the boss likes this sport. Oh, I love that sport too, man. It's awesome. Let's go. I got tickets for you. You want to go with me? You know, this partiality idea. Paul was disgusted by this with his buddy Peter. His buddy Peter is hanging out with the Gentiles, having a good time. The Jewish leaders show up in the book of Galatians, and Peter alienates himself from the Gentiles. I don't want to eat with them and eats only with the Jews. Paul was so fed up with this, he went, to, he went up to Peter and stood him to the face and said, you're not in line with the gospel. Like, you're kind of being a joke. This is hypocritical. You're eating with the Gentiles till these guys show up, and now these guys show up. You only want to eat with them. Paul says that this tendency could be ours with our labor if we want to please man if we want to be people pleasers. One brother once told me, you don't really know the true character of a man if somebody like the president walks in. You know the character of a man or how he treats the homeless person that walks in. How you treat the person who can give you nothing is who you really are. How we treat the people at our jobs and engage with the people that actually can't offer us any status, that's who we really are. And that's what Paul says here. He says, don't show any partiality because God shows no partiality. The ends don't justify the means at work because for the Christian, we always have a boss who sees and who knows, and it's Jesus. Number two, humility. We reject prideful arrogance. We take the posture of the servant even whenever we're considered, quote, masters. So it's even like the boss who decides he's going to be a servant leader is the one who's the Christian. I don't exercise my authority on the basis of what I have on the earth, I exercise authority as a servant under Jesus Christ. And then number three, wholeheartedness. If your work is worship, then your half-hearted efforts don't reflect half-hearted devotion to your job. They reflect half-hearted devotion to your God. Sometimes what we'll think is, well, I don't really like my company. My boss is a jerk, whatever may happen. So I'm just only going to give halfway. So, you know, my paycheck comes in. Paul says here that we don't what is reflected here is not how we feel about our jobs. It's how we feel about our worship towards God. We give everything that we have when we work because it's worship to God, not worship to our corporations, to our businesses, to our bottom lines. See, this is a different way of viewing work. You're viewing work in the heavenly sense of the word, not in the earthly sense of the word. Okay. Now, I want to bring to your attention what I think is the deeper and most fundamental point that Paul make here, makes here in this text, and I don't think it has anything to do with your job. I think it's summing up the last three relationships he's been mentioning, both marriage and both family and both uh, your job, and he's summing it, up, summing it up with this understanding, which is what does true freedom in Christ look like? What is true freedom in Christ for the Christian in our lives? The Bible says we're all born into this world, this world that's looking to ensnare us and enslave us. We all find ourselves underneath the spiritual bondage of sin. This is what the Bible tells us in Romans 3. So not only are we in bondage to sin from birth, but also we're constantly being coerced. We're constantly being challenged by the nature of our fallen world to willingly give up the freedom that Christ has offered to us so that we might enslave ourselves to various masters under the guise of sometimes what has to be done in our lives. So, you know, we, you have to have a job. And so sometimes what we'll justify is because I have to have a job, our jobs become little g gods. And we don't really realize that subtle difference, but that is a difference. Saying that I want to make money so that my family might be provided for and your job owning you and enslaving you are very subtle and they, and they look similar. They look as similar as thanking God for the gifts that he's given or worshiping the gift and not the giver. Do you guys catch that? You see this in your children at Christmas, right? It's like, what do we teach them from like a very young age before they go and enjoy the thing that's been given? You say, tell your grandma, thank you. You know, why do we do that? Well, because it's polite. Okay, but what's deeper than that, right? Can we go a little further? 
Of course it's polite, but it's deeper. It's recognizing the relationship is the point of the gifts. It's not that you don't want your child to enjoy the gifts. Of course you do, but it's the relationship communicated. I love you, and I want you to receive that love and know that this gift comes as a way that I can communicate that I love you. Now, the difficult thing with us is that jobs, we can forget that God is the ultimate provider. He does it through these means, and they're a great gift, but if ultimately we think that it's the job, then that enslaves us. Or what the money provides can enslave us, right? So that could be, in a consumeristic culture, almost anything. You know, famous Fight Club quote writes, like, things that you own end up owning you. This happens. So what's the deeper point from Paul? He says this, you're only a slave to what you worship. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what you deeply treasure, what you deeply love, and money is uniquely attached to this, what, where your money is, that treasure, your heart will be also. Let me tell you something, nothing like your job vies for your heart because it's attached to that money, which is attached to security, which is attached to status, which is attached to approval, which is attached to comfort. It's attached to a myriad of idols, right? So we have to be cautious. So it's only Christians that can really live their life freely under earthly authority because they say, I don't really submit to earthly authority only I submit to God and therefore to earthly authority. So Christians understand freedom is a condition of the heart, not a condition of the body. Listen to me on this. If freedom's not really about earthly circumstances and it's about a heavenly station, how should that change the Christian in the way in which they live? It's not about how things are going physically, how things are going at the job. It's about what's true for me spiritually that Christ has won. Now, I want, you, I want you to, for a moment, take a step back. Paul, writing this book, is more poised, more positioned to teach you this lesson than anyone else, and here's why. You might not know this, but Ephesians is what is, what is called a prison epistle. Paul writes this whole letter under house arrest, imprisoned, and not imprisoned because he's done something wrong, imprisoned because he's a political prisoner for preaching Christ. This man knows, we can at least say for all of us, more than any of us, what it means to be both physically and spiritually bound against your will, right? Because we know that Paul was bound spiritually before his conversion, and we know that right now he's enslaved in his own house with chains. And yet he writes to these people about freedom. Paul understood the realities of physical bondage, and yet he was the inheritor of the only true and lasting freedom that human beings can attain in Jesus Christ. So he knew what he was talking about when he tells them about freedom. The Buddha has this quote, and you're gonna, this is going to sound like something you're willing to put on your Facebook until I tell you how absolutely wrong it is. Um, the Buddha has this quote. He says, no one outside of ourselves can rule us inwardly. When we know this, then we become free. That sounds good. Here's, I'll say another thing. It sounds very American, very individualistic. We're like, we're our own masters, right? We're the only one who's the master of our fate. And it sounds correct to an extent. You're like, yeah, you're the only one that can look in the mirror and say, I'm not going to be that anymore. I'm going to be something new. But here's what I'll tell you the Bible says. The Bible says you cannot rule yourself inwardly. In fact, the Bible says you're enslaved to yourself inwardly and you need a redeemer outside of yourself. And this is the gospel that he came, manifest in the flesh, God in the flesh, to redeem you from your enslavement inwardly. Think of the Exodus. How does God introduce himself to the children of Israel for the first time? Moses says, what is your name? Tell them I am sent me. I am who I am. And then he says, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He introduces himself like this over and over and over and over again. I am the Lord your God. What do I do? The first thing he does is I free you from slavery. I free you from slavery. I freed you from slavery. Now we know now in the context of the New Testament that God introduces himself as a redeemer from slavery because we are in spiritual bondage we can't get out of. And God says, I'm the one who frees you from that. And so Paul's foundational truth that he's teaching us here is that all earthly submission, whether it's marital, whether it's familial, whether it's your job, must terminate on submission to the one true God or else it's slavery. If any earthly submission doesn't terminate on submission to God, you are enslaving yourself to little g gods. I'll give you examples just in case you don't believe me. People pleasing makes man your God. You worry more about the approval of your neighbor, your man, your boss, your husband, your wife, your spouse, your kids, your kids, teachers, entertainers, Instagram influencers. They all become your little g God. Work without God as your ultimate provider means that money becomes your God. Marriage without Jesus as the bridegroom means your spouse is your God. Family without God as your father, parents become your God. Sexuality without God as your ultimate fulfillment and joy, sex becomes your God. Dinner time without God as your daily sustenance, food becomes your God. Life without Jesus as Lord, you become your own God. And let me tell you what the Bible says, all the little G gods enslave. Every one of them. There is only one God who says, if you give me wholehearted allegiance and you submit to my authority, I will free you forever. Listen to me. There is no other God, little g God, whether it be you or the many I just listed. All of them, they call you to be their subjects and then they enslave you. Jesus does the opposite. No other God, no other king, no other master dies so that you can have life. Kings don't do that. They call you to die so that they can live. Jesus dies so that you can live. No other king and master becomes poor so that you can become rich. That's what Jesus does, impoverishes himself that, he might in, that you might inherit wealth. No other kings and masters experience pain and suffering so that you can experience joy and life. Only Jesus does that. No other kings labor intensely so that you can have rest. You ever watch this? Think about the creation. God labors for six days. He rests on the seventh day, not because he needs rest, but because who needs rest? You. And then in Hebrews, we find out that God rested from his work so that you can rest from your works because you cannot do the works necessary to save yourself. Jesus did the works necessary to save yourself. And then he says, come into my rest. Only Jesus as a king will allow himself to be stripped naked so you can be clothed in righteousness. Only Jesus will allow himself to be mocked and ridiculed so that you can be praised and honored. And I could go on and on and on. Jesus is a unique kind of master. He's the only one that tells you, if you come and submit to me, I'll give you freedom. Every other God offers you all of the promises that you could deeply want and then enslaves you. The book of Judges, which our men are going through right now, tell you the story over and over. As all the gods... That, that bordered the towns of Israel, all of them enslaved the people of Israel, but it was only God, Yahweh, that gave them freedom. And so I want to close with this text. This is Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Before Joshua dies, this is a, f- a famous verse, very familiar. You might have it on your mantelpiece, but I hope it changes the way you view this later. Joshua is about to go as an old man who's fought his whole life to bring the promised land into fruition. And he stands before the children of Israel. He's going to make this statement to them. And I want you to think of it in terms of Paul's foundational understanding of what freedom looks like. 
He tells them this to the children of Israel. If it's evil in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. Now, you might say, well, I'm not going to serve anyone, but I want to remind you, you will serve someone. Like Bob Dylan's old song is still true. You may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but everybody's going to serve somebody. (laughs) Okay? So Joshua knows this. It's fundamental. You could serve the Lord or you could serve who? You can serve the gods that your father served in the region of beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites and the lands in whom you dwelled. But watch this. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua says, you can serve all the gods that you want. They enslave you. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord who brings us out of slavery. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so he says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And this is key. This is fundamental. This is what Paul says. Every one of us are met with this every day. You can serve the various gods that vie for your attention, vie for your affections, and ultimately enslave you. Or you can wake up and say, I serve the Lord. I submit to earthly authority because Jesus is king. Not because I believe in man's authority. True freedom is choose you this day whom you will serve. And my prayer is that you be able to say confidently like Joshua, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. If you're a Christian in the room, this is freedom for you. Galatians chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you're not sure you're a Christian, here's what I pray. I pray you recognize all the other options are slavery. They don't seem like they are, but they never do, do they? Because no that's not a great marketing campaign. Only Jesus offers freedom when we are willing to submit to him. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Oh, Father, my prayer now, in our marriages, in our families, in our jobs, help us to serve as unto you, our great and glorious King. I pray for freedom for my friends under the sound of my voice, those my brothers and my sisters. If they've been enslaved to various struggles, enslaved to various idols, as they sing now and as they take of your supper, would you just let those chains fall off of them? For those under the sound of my voice who aren't sure about you, Jesus, would you stand forth as the only king willing to free them? The only king that requires allegiance that he might bring them life. I pray, God, you'd make yourself known. And most of all, my God, I pray for our children. Help us to be able to teach them and impart to them that as for our house, we will serve you and you alone. As for this house, as for Providence, we will serve you and you alone because only in you is their life. We, we quote the words of the disciples to say there are no other words of life than come from your mouth. We cannot go another place. We cannot go another way. Forgive us, Lord, when our hearts are wayward. We come back to you now and we thank you. In Jesus' name. <laughs>